Well, good morning, church. We'll continue our study through the book of Psalms this morning. If you'll open your Bible to the second Psalm, Psalm 2. Let us be reminded every time we open God's Word that this truly is God's Word. It's His Word for us, and it's settled. Psalm 119 tells us it's eternally settled in the heavens. God's Word is eternal. So as we begin to read this psalm, you'll see in our slide that Psalm 2 is broken into four stanzas. Verses 1 through 3 is the plans of the nation to rebel against God the Father and the Son. Verses 4 through 6, the responses of God to their ridiculous plan. Verse 7 through 9, King Jesus' rightful claim to the throne in spite of opposition. And then verses 10 through 12, the wise advice of God to rebellious people. Will you bow with me in prayer this morning? Let us pray. Our God and our King, we, we humble ourselves, Lord, the best we can, but we ask by your Spirit you would humble us more. Oh, Lord, would we hear from you today? And may we leave this place knowing that you've spoken to us. Lord, those here that are asleep in their sins, would you, would you thunder your voice from heaven and awake them? And Lord, for your dear saints, would you comfort us? Oh God, we need you. We trust you, God. It's all yours. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you look with me at the second psalm, beginning verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. 
We live in a world that openly opposes God in big and in small ways. Uh, Many people that we would know, they simply ignore God. They, they do life their own way. They, they go to school, they raise their children, they, they, they go to work, but never do they have the slightest thought of following Jesus. Even this simple life of not acknowledging Jesus is open rebellion. And so as we look at Psalm 2, it will teach us that God has powerfully and decisively set his son, Jesus, on the throne to end this world's rebellion. This uprising began when Adam and Eve first sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. But God's not going to let this go on forever. He has appointed a king, a king with authority over every person and every nation. We saw last week in Psalm 1, the blessed man. The blessed man was one who delighted in the law of God. And you can go back and listen to Psalm 1 and catch up on the series on the website. But this morning, we're in Psalm 2, and we see the one who defies or rebels against the law of God. We can look around. We see that the world hates God's anointed king. But we know that the righteous, they embrace him, and they're blessed. And we'll see here as we look at our text this morning that you're giving two ways to live. You can refuse Christ or you can take refuge in him. And so the purpose of this psalm is to convince us that it is, it is foolish, it is, it is futile to fight against Jesus Christ. For the Christian here today, this is a message of hope, a message of great encouragement. The, the world is lined up against God, and yet Jesus, he'll conquer all nations, and he'll conquer all peoples. And though the, the wicked rulers and the wicked people, they'll rage against God, they'll resist his kingdom, the Lord has established his son as the Lord over all. And then he invites, he even commands sinners to come to him, to embrace him, to bow before him, before his wrath is unleashed. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as Savior, God will be appealing to you through this psalm that we're going to look at. And his appeal will be this, be wise, be reasonable. You can't fight God, but you need to bend your knee to Jesus. You need to honor him with joy. True blessings don't come from being free to live your life any way you want to live your life. But true blessing, true happiness comes from following, from submitting to King Jesus. Verses 1 through 3, they'll show us here the plan of the nations to rebel against God the Father and against his Son. Read verse 1 with me. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the people's devising a vain thing. We see that rhetorical question there. Why are they doing this? This is a rhetorical question. It's an expression of amazement and a mixture of anger and annoyance. Why, why are they doing this? Why is there this, this uproar? Why is there this, this rage? Why is there this tumultuous commotion going on? Why are they restless. Augustine, as we probably say, or Augustine, 
as scholars pronounce his name, he tells us very clearly why they are restless. He says this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. They're not resting in God. They're in an uproar because they're not resting in him. They're rebelling against him. And here in verse 1 and line 2, and the peoples are devising a vain thing. They're devising this empty, pointless, destined to fail thing with no purpose. Don't they know they can't win? Why are they raging? Why are they scheming? The, the word here, devised, means to plot or conspire. All the nations, all the peoples in the world are together in this. This uprising is not limited to any social class. It's both the people and their leaders, the upper class, the lower class. They have set themselves against God. Read verse 2 with me. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There is this devising and counseling with each other, this consulting and conspiring against God. There is this opposition against God. They're crafty, they're sneaky, they're deliberate about going against God. But you notice here that they're the kings of the earth. God is showing their feeble and perishable condition. They're the kings of the earth. And though they're just merely kings of the earth, they still take their stand. The word stand there means they're positioning themselves against God. And as they counsel together, they sit in their conclaves, they're close together, and they're conspiring against God. The world is very sneaky. Charles Spurgeon has this indictment upon us. He says, Oh, that men were half as careful in God's service to serve him wisely as his enemies are to attack his kingdom craftily. Are we giving God our best? The world is very creative, very purposeful. Or are we just kind of flippant with our worship? Flippant with our lives towards God? Verse two, these kings, they're taking their stand. These wicked people are taking their stand. But who are they fighting against? Against the Lord. In your Bible, you'll see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, all capital letters. That's God's proper name. That's his covenant name. It's often pronounced Yahweh or sometimes translated Jehovah, meaning the self-existent one. The name of the eternal one true God. They have now taken their stand against God and against his anointed one, meaning his Messiah, the king, the eternal high priest. The word anointed that is translated Messiah in the Hebrew and Christ in the Greek. And since Jesus is God's son, those who rebel against the Messiah, against Jesus, they're rebelling against God himself. The rebellion is against the Lord and against his son, the anointed one. And their defiant voice cries out in verse 3. Read verse 3 with me. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And so the wicked, both the wicked people and their wicked rulers, 
they express their desire to be free of the control of God. This is the heart of sin. The heart of sin is a repudiation, a rejection of God's rule. They want to do their own will. They want to be free to commit all kinds of abominations. They want to be their own gods. They want to rid themselves of all restraints. Like a, like a dog trying to break his leash. Like a, a criminal trying to get out of his handcuffs. Trying to throw off the yoke that is tied to their body. But this attempt is in vain. Because only true freedom comes from submitting to God. And to doing his will. The kings of the earth, they want to break their fetters. They want to break their bonds. They want to break their cords, meaning the, the chains of obedience to God. They want to tear them. They want to pull them off and break them and snap them. They don't want to be restrained. They want to, no one to rule over them. They do not want to submit. They do not want to bow. They do not want to honor. They do not want to obey. They do not want to be tied down. And so they cast, they, they hurl, they, they throw away their cords, their ropes, they want to be rid of the restraints and be rid of the safeguards. Those who oppose God, who are against God, they want to be free of God and they want to do as they please. But for the true Christian, the yoke of Christ, it is easy and it is light. Do you love the yoke of Christ? Or do you wish to get out from under it? So let us be reminded the, the puny efforts of men, they will never, never thwart the sovereign will of God. Next, we look at verses four through six where we see the response of God to their ridiculous plan. Read verse four with me. He, speaking of God, who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He who sits is understood to be he who is enthroned, he who abides in his dwelling place. Notice this, God is sitting. Meaning he is composed, he is ruling, he is in complete control, he's not pacing the floor. And where is he sitting? He who sits in the, where? In the heavens. Where was those kings? They were but earthly kings. But the God of heaven and the God of earth and the God of all things, look at this lofty title, he who sits in the heavens. He who is enthroned in the heavens. He laughs. And so this peaceful scene of heaven, what a contrast to the noisy, chaotic, raging scene on earth. God's not worried. God's not afraid. To God, the, the greatest rulers on earth are, as the prophet Isaiah says, grass to be cut down. The strongest nation, as the prophet Isaiah says, are like drops in the bucket. So what is God's response? What is his response to these rebellious rulers and these wicked people of the earth? God who is enthroned in heaven, he merely laughs. Remember we said last week, it's, it's a very scary thing for God to laugh at you. This isn't humorous laughter. There's no hilarity in it. But it's laughter of divine derision. It's mockery. It's contempt. God is scoffing at them. God looks down at this creature, someone who was created. And, and who created these kings and these rulers and all the peoples? Who created them in the first place? God. And God looks down at them. 
And they rage and they rant and they shake their puny little fist at God and they disobey his word and they want to be their own boss of their life. Not even realizing that God is upholding all creation. God is perpetually sustaining all of life even now. He is giving them the beat of the heart. He's giving them breath in their lungs, the same, it's the same breath they used to rage against God. He gives them. And to God, it's so ludicrous, it's laughable. It's so preposterous, it's ridiculous. He just scoffs at them. And so where's God when it looks like evil people are taking over? Where is God during all the chaos? What is God going to do about this mutiny here on earth? God laughs. God's not in in heaven wringing his hands. What do I do? He doesn't call in his generals and say, I'd, I'd like some advice on this. He doesn't go hide in an undisclosed safe location. But God laughs because this threatening It doesn't threaten him in the least. And the nations rage, but God doesn't have to rage in equal measure to defend himself. He doesn't have to seek someone for advice. He doesn't have to scheme and plot and plan. Actually, God doesn't even bother to stand up. Our text says in verse four, he sits in the heavens laughing. God's power remains intact and unimpaired. God hasn't even stood up to go to battle. He despises them. He knows how absurd and irrational and futile their attempts are against him. And so God laughs at them. And God's laughter, it humiliates his enemies. He holds them in derision. Verse four says he scoffs at them. He's not laughing at their sin. God takes sin very seriously. God slaughtered his son to reconcile sinners to himself. He's not laughing at sin, but God is laughing. He is mocking. He is scoffing his enemies as he holds them up to public disgrace and shame. And this was done supremely through Jesus' death and resurrection, as we see in Colossians 2.15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display, or we can understand that as he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through him through Jesus. He triumphs over his enemies. God's mocking laughter is a part of his judgment on sinners. Let me remind you, when kings and rulers and wicked individuals oppose God, it will have no effect on God. God's purpose will be accomplished. God's will is not deterred. It's not detoured. It's not deferred. It's not denied. God's rule will not be kept away. It will not be sent another way. It will not be delayed. And God's will will not be refused. Read verse 5 with me. So he's done laughing. Now what will he do? Then he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them in his fury. This divine laughter is now turned to anger and fury. And God rebukes them. God's absolute holiness results in his judgment on sinners. To all those who, by their words and by their actions, they have declared war against God, God merely opens his mouth. I want to be honest with you this morning. There 
are many people perhaps even sitting in here this morning and they'll say something like this. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Jesus. But I'm not against him. He doesn't leave us that option. He says you're for me or you're against me. There's no fence sitters in the kingdom. And so we either submit to Christ as king or we're viewed as one that he laughs at and he scoffs at and he holds in derision because until we bow to him, we're his enemy. And then he speaks. He speaks to them and he terrifies them in verse five. That word terrify means he distresses them. He, he vexes them. He, he disturbs them. He makes them scared and anxious. He troubles them. And in his fury, that's his deep displeasure, his burning anger, his fierceness. Can you picture it? Can you picture it in your mind? They're, they're the, the wicked are. They're scheming and planting and, and inventing all these, these conspiracies against God. And God is sitting in the heaven and he's laughing. Christian, we need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we become so fearful, so, so fret, fretful of, of what's happening in this world. But God laughs. He scoffs. And so there they are, they're, they're scheming and they're, plan, they're planning and conspiring against God and he's sitting and laughing. All the power in the world will not and it cannot stop God's word. It cannot stop his plan. It cannot stop his purpose. Did you hear that, Christian? Did you hear that, dearly beloved of God? Nothing, nothing can hinder God's plan. Nothing can stop God's love for you. If you are hidden in Christ. And to the wicked world listening and watching, tremble. Fall to your knees. Fall to your knees in repentance and seek God's mercy. Because God's word, God's plan, God's purpose, it cannot and it will not be stopped. God has spoken, his word will stand. He has set Jesus Christ as king over all creation. Read verse six with me. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It's as if God is saying, well, well they may do such and such, but as for me, I will do this. In response to man's insane attempts to overthrow God and to kick against God, the Lord thunders from heaven. I have installed my king in Zion. Simply put, Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. He has set his king God has set King Jesus. He has installed him. He has been appointed by God as king. Jesus is king, not the rulers of the earth. And now as we look in verses seven through nine, King Jesus' rightful claim to the throne in spite of opposition. All that God has decreed, his son, the Messiah, will execute leading the Father to giving the Son all things under his rule. 
All that the Father has planned and purposed in eternity past, the Son will proclaim and perform within time and within history. Read verse 7 with me. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We need to be very careful with this verse. Verse 7 is not saying, it is not saying that the son is a created being. This statement is pointing specifically to the incarnation in Hebrews 1 and the resurrection in Acts 13 when begotten means begotten from the tomb and coming forth in glory. And so we must remember this. This is a very important doctrine. The Father is eternal and the Son is eternal. Begotten, this is what it does mean. Begotten means it shares the nature of. Not made, not created. When we say Jesus is begotten, we are saying he has the nature of the Father, meaning he is both divine, Jesus is God, and he is eternal. Jesus is the eternal Son of God with no beginning and with no end. The Nicene Creed, the standard Christian creed, says this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance, or that can be understood as one essence with the Father by whom all things were made. Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Jesus has always existed. The Father has always existed. The Spirit has always existed. And so here in verse 7, Jesus, the Messiah, he speaks for himself. God's king is not the strong but silent type. No, God's king, he's a preacher. He's a proclaimer. He's a, a testifier of himself. And he tells us what the father told him. The king informs those who have rebelled against God that God makes the rules. God makes the decree. He's the one in charge. And he sets the conditions. Notice God doesn't ask for a consensus. God doesn't take a vote. God's decrees are right. And God never makes a mistake. And when Jesus Christ declares that he is God's son, he's identifying himself as deity. It is him saying, I am God. Jesus is God, and Jesus is heir of all things. Read verse 8 with me. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The Father God has promised God the Son He's promised Jesus the farthest corners of the world as his inheritance. He will judge everyone, and as king, Jesus will rule all things, including the new earth, heaven on earth. And Jesus will have this vast inheritance from among the nations and innumerable possession of all people for himself. Read verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Jesus is repeating, he is proclaiming here what the Father has told him he will do. 
Jesus has been commissioned to use whatever force is necessary to subdue the world and to take it as his inheritance. And that word shall, it implies that it will be done. There will be many that resist him. Therefore, there will be many shattered by Christ. And you shall break them. That means you shall rule over them. The second line in verse 9 says, you shall shatter them like earthenware. For those who oppose Christ, he will smash them like clay pots. Remember last week in Psalm 1, the wicked or the ungodly, they were like chaff that the wind blows away. And here they're compared to broken pieces of pottery. I know this is, this is very direct. I know this is judgment preaching. But God's not asked me to apologize for him. And so I'm not going to apologize. Because King Jesus will return to this planet. And he will put down the rebellion that has broken out against him. And it will be for all time. And everyone that is not his by the new birth, everyone that has not been born again by faith, everyone who is not saved, he's going to break them with an iron rod. And maybe that doesn't sit well with you. Maybe you've not heard this side of Jesus. But he said he's going to do it. And so we have to understand this, church. We have to understand this at all ages. But especially our young people, we have to understand this because it, it, it will shape your view of God for your whole life. Jesus is not some namby-pamby, soft and cuddly, warm and fuzzy hippie dude. He's not your homie. He's the sovereign king of all glory. And when he bolts out of heaven in the final days, He's not coming to play nice with unforgiven sinners. He's not coming to make light of sin. But he's the line of Judah. And he is returning to judge and to slaughter and to damn everyone that has not submitted themselves to him for salvation. Christ will execute perfect justice. He will slay his enemies. God founded his kingdom and God will defend his kingdom. Jesus is king over all kingdoms, over all nations, over all governments, over all powers, over all people. Jesus is king. And I know in our culture that's not very popular. I know Sadly, that there is a famine in the land for truth like this in many pulpits. But this is what God would have you know from Psalm 2. That you can fight him, you can rage against him, you can oppose him, but you will lose eternally. Or, you can submit to him. And you can worship him. And you can honor him, and you can fear him, and you can adore him, and you can cast yourself upon his mercy, and you will find rest and salvation for your soul. No one can overthrow God's eternal throne. His kingdom is invincible. Jesus is God, Jesus is king, and Jesus is conqueror. 
and a warning this harsh is needed because hearts are so cold and so calloused. A sharp and a hard word is needed to recover those who are blind in their rebellion. God rules over the wicked in judgment. He rules over them in strength, but he rules over the Christian by his spirit and by his graces. God rules over the wicked, but he rules in the child of God. God rules in the hearts and in the minds of his people. For the child of God, let me assure you something this morning. If you're a Christian this morning, let me assure you of this. It's not the strength of your faith that will save you. It's the object of your faith that will save you. If your faith is in Jesus, and though our faith is is so weak and fickle at times, if your faith is in Jesus, dear saint, your beloved is very nigh. He is very near. And he will wipe away every tear. And he will erase every dark night of the soul. And he will vindicate you. And there are pleasures at his right hand forever. Forever. And so let that be a comfort to you. Let that be a, a consolation to you. When the, when the world rages, remember it's a fulfillment of what God long ago predicted and determined. And now we look at verses 10 through 12. We see the wise advice of God to a rebellious people. Read verse 10 with me. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. God is saying this. He says, this is who I am. So be wise. Make a smart decision here. Be prudent Accept this correction. This appeal is God's mercy and patience as he holds out his hand to a rebellious world. With one hand, God is offering peace. And with the other hand, he is holding back his righteous indignation. He is holding back his wrath. But one day, he will no longer stay his wrath. But he will bust wide the dam of judgment. And many will be consumed. This morning, will you make peace with God? Will you make peace with God through Jesus Christ? This morning, right now, will you stop making excuses? Will you quit playing games? Will you quit playing games with the one who created you? And will you come to Jesus for salvation, for tender mercy, for everlasting life? Will you come to him this morning? The work of the Holy Spirit is to lift up Christ and to draw us to him. That's what these final verses are doing. After the thunder of that rod of iron in verse 9, there's this very gentle, this very tender, this very loving and sincere and caring voice calling for you to be sensible, for you to be wise. And so will you examine yourself this morning? Will you examine yourself and consider God's word to you? Today, God is calling out to his people in patience. In grace, God is calling out to them to trust his son. But the day is coming when he will only speak to the world in wrath and terrible judgment.
there's only two options. Accept God's judgment for sin on the cross by trusting Jesus or accept God's judgment for your own sins. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. The words there, the phrase there, now therefore, it means as a result or because of, because of what you have just heard, because of what God has revealed to you in his word. It's not this knee jerk, this unthought out response, but our text this morning is imploring you to make a logical conclusion from what God is telling you in Psalm 2. He's saying you must come to your senses. God is patiently reasoning with you. He says, be wise. And that's a little bit of an irony there. You would think that if you were a king or someone in leadership that you would have wisdom, but in this case, the wicked are very deficient in wisdom. And he says, take warning. That means be instructed, be teachable. You're being told to act smart to make correct choices that will lead to peace with God, not destruction. However smart sinners think they are, they are fools until they humble themselves at the feet of Jesus. And this is how they are to be wise. Read verse 11 with me. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Worship the Lord with reverence. I wholeheartedly agree with the interpretation of the King James Version, the ESV, if you have the ESV, some of you know carry the NIV, this is how they translate it. Not worship the Lord with reverence, which is an okay translation, but it says serve the Lord with fear. That means worship the Lord with reverence. Serve the Lord with fear. That means to worship him and obey him. And so fear is a better translation. And it does include fear, but it also includes reverence. And it includes adoration. Many of you perhaps have grown up in church. How many of you have heard this? Well, fear doesn't really mean fear. Fear just means, you know, like you respect him a lot. Or there's this, you know, like a holy reverence. There's a respect. But but fear, fear don't really mean fear. Guess what fear means? Fear. And it also means reverence and adoration. But for the Christian, there is a different sense of fear or a different type of fear. But that is is one of the worst indictments upon the church today in modern times is that we no longer fear God. How many times growing up as a a young person did you hear the phrase, well, that's a God-fearing man. Oh, so-and-so down the road, he's a God-fearing man. That was a good thing. But now you say fear, and and the first thing people want to say is, well, that don't really mean fear. We have lost the fear of God. Oh, that God would cause us to fear him again. 
So fear is a better translation, and it includes fear, it includes reverence, it does include adoration. When you fear God, you are drawn to him in love. You're drawn to him in adoration. You're drawn to him in amazement, in awe, because of who God is, and yet, because of who God is, when we rightfully fear him, we shrink back in reverence, and we shrink back even in fear. Evidence that you fear God means you obey him, you worship him, you serve him. And so worshiping or serving or rejoicing with fear, that that may seem confusing. But listen closely. Though fear can mean dread or terror, and in some sense that is accurate, like you're completely scared, that is the fear of unsaved sinners. But the word fear is not just reverential awe. To reverence means seeing God as sacred, exalted, having this deep affectionate respect for God. And that is true. We should have a reverential awe of God, seeing him as sacred, viewing him with affectionate respect. But that still does not take the place of fear. For the Christian, fear is a positive devotion. We adore God, we are amazed at his glorious power, yet we shrink back because of that power. Because of who God is, it is frightening. He is all-powerful. But there's this holy, there's this good tension. It's a good thing. And it's between adoration and fear. And we don't fear like the unconverted. Yet we do fear him. And we worship him and we love him and we adore him and we respect him and we reverence him. But we fear him. We fear him. He's worthy of fear. Read verse 11 with me. Worship the Lord with reverence or serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Instead of resisting God, sinners must turn around and worship the Lord with reverence. They must serve the Lord with fear. You must realign yourself with God, no longer serving you, but yielding your service to God. And the person who truly believes, you will shift your allegiance. You'll shift your allegiance from I'm all about me to now I'm all about Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. He's the ruler. He's now the boss of your life. Everything you are and everything you own has now been transferred to his ownership. And a Christian, the believer, they know what it is to have both fear and joy in your heart. Because this, love for God, it cast out sinful fear, but love for God perfects godly fear. And God doesn't want you to think the service he calls you in to is grievous or that it's a burden to you. So he uses the word here in the second line of verse 11, rejoice, rejoice. It's showing us that submitting to God is pleasant, it's desirable, it's worthy of rejoicing in. And yet, what are we to rejoice in? What does the last line of verse 11 say? Rejoice with trembling or worship with reverence. 
We're to worship a holy God in proportion. We are to rejoice greatly, yet we must realize we are in the presence of God, so we must make sure our rejoicing is honoring to God. God's presence is both attracting and frightening, so we can rejoice in his presence, but with reverential fear. And when a Christian fears the Lord, they'll obey his word. They'll avoid evil. When you fear the Lord, you will worship God more purely. And when you fear the Lord, your praise to him will be honoring. John Richardson, 1655, says this of a kiss. Kiss, a sign of love among equals, of subjection in inferiors, and of religious adoration in worshipers. Read verse 12 with me. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Once again, the King James Version, the ESV, and the NIV do a great job with translating the word do homage. Your version perhaps says kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Embrace him. Depend on him as your kinsman and as your sovereign Lord. Kissing the son, it's a sign of humble submission, of lowering yourself before the king. It's showing loving devotion. It's a loyal allegiance to Christ so that he does not become angry and you perish in the way. It's a very clear choice. It's better to bend the knee than to have your knee broken. And every knee will one day bow. Philippians 2.10 So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. But here's the question. Will you bow the knee now? Will you bow the knee now in repentance and in faith? Will you bow the knee now in humble submission? Will you bow the knee now in worship, in complete humility, in complete submitting to Jesus Christ as the Lord that he is? Or, in that final day, will you have your knee crushed with the rod of iron, forcing you to fall upon your knees? And then confessing that Jesus is Lord to the judgment upon yourself. While there is opportunity, turn from your wicked ways and embrace Jesus by faith. And look at line two here in verse 12. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Here is a warning. It's saying that... Repentance needs to be speedy. It needs to be now. It's necessary that you repent now. And there's only one person. That's the God-man. Fully God and fully man. Jesus. He's the only one that has appeased the wrath of God. We are saved from God. We're saved from his wrath. We are saved by God. We're saved by Jesus. And we are saved for God to do good works, and we are saved to God. He is now our Lord. We are saved by God, from God, for God, and to God. 
And so all these harsh words this morning, all this stern imagery from the word of God, talking about the iron rod and the wrath of God and smashing and judging, all those are true. And all that would overwhelm us. So God in his kindness, he includes this comfort at the end of Psalm 2. Here at the very end, a sanctuary of hope is opened up. And it's opened up so believers of Jesus can run to safety. They can run to escape the wrath of God that is to come. We are to run for salvation. Look at the last phrase of verse 12, the very last line. How blessed. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are all who come to Jesus for safety. Who come to Jesus by faith for comfort. How blessed are you if you come to Jesus for peace. Confiding in him. Coming under his lordship. Coming under his protection. The more we take refuge, that means the more that we trust, the more blessed we'll be. King Jesus is Lord over all. Submit to him now. For he's a good king. He's the best king. He's the only wise king. Our only hope is to embrace Jesus Christ. Our last slide says there is no refuge from him. There's no refuge from God. There is only refuge in him. We can't hide from God. We can only come under his lordship, coming to him in faith. To take refuge in the Lord means to have faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Last week, Psalm 1 started with the words, how blessed. And now Psalm 2 concludes with the words, how blessed. Both Psalms give the promise of blessing for those who trust in the Son of God. And that promise, it still stands today. Has God conquered all of you? And I mean that individually. Has God conquered your whole person? Has God conquered you completely? Fasten yourself to him. Align yourself with him. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. You've provided a way of escape. And so God, make us reasonable and wise that we would flee to Jesus for salvation. You're the, you're the Lord of all, the God of the universe, and yet you come down and you meet with us. Lord, have your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As Pastor Tom comes, this is a great time to respond and to reflect on what you've just heard from God's word. Is God drawing you to himself? You can respond right now through repentance and faith.
confessing your sin, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. If you'd like for me or Nathan or Pastor Andy to pray with you, if you have any questions about what you've just heard, if you have any questions about your salvation, I'm always available. And we'll be down front right here as the worship team leads us in song.